Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to History Hack. If you didn't know by now, we are the revolution. That means we're sharp, witty, lots of fun, but it also means that we're essentially the peasants in Les Mis huddled round a table in the corner of the bar with no money. If you enjoy the show, please do support us. We have a Patreon account by which you can donate a small monthly sum in appreciation of what you're hearing. Alternatively, we have Ko-fi in which you can just do a one-off donation as a thank you if you particularly enjoy a certain episode. Either way, we massively appreciate all of your support. Hope you enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to another episode of History Hack. Uh, we're very excited today because uh, the person we've got with us, Chris, uh, is quite prolific in writing very exciting books. Tell us who it is. Absolutely. We have Ben McIntyre, who is a, a columnist and associate editor for The Times. But you probably already, probably know him as the best-selling author of Zigzag, Operation Mincemeat, SAS Rogue Heroes and many, many others. So uh, welcome to the show, Ben. Thank you very much. Delighted to be here. This is brilliant. So your new book is about colditz. So I guess should we just drive straight dive straight in. I'll edit that. Should we just dive straight in and talk about Colditz Castle before it becomes a high security prisoner of war camp for escape prone allied POWs? Absolutely. Well, for about a thousand years before Colditz became the Colditz that we know of as the POW camp, it was this it was a massive Gothic medieval schloss on a cliff overlooking the village of Colditz. And it was built in the, in the 11th century, uh, and then it massively expanded by the electors of Saxony, who were the kind of hereditary feudal rulers of vast parts of East Germany and large parts of the rest of the world as well, rest of Europe as well. And it was always a place where the electors kept unwanted people. I mean, its history, Colditz, has always been as a place that incarcerated people who really didn't want to be in it. Now, in the case of the electors of Saxony, that was kind of unwanted children, unwanted siblings, people who might threaten their control. But even just before the war, it was used by the Nazis as a concentration camp and even tragically as a place to keep um, disabled people who, who were killed in quite large numbers. So it had a very tragic history. I mean, it's a very grand place. I mean, it has its own theatre. It's got these beautiful grounds. It's actually very beautiful, Colditz. It's now been painted white and it, it doesn't really look like the kind of terrifying castle that we all remember from, uh, from, from the war. It's actually a very beautiful place, but it has this very, very grim history. Who was imprisoned in Colditz and why there specifically? Was it the well, only POW camp like this in existence in Nazi Germany for the prone escapers? Yes, Colditz was unique, uh, and it was established as an officer's camp, Offlag 4C, to give it its German title. And it was intended to be a camp for difficult prisoners. The, the term the Germans used was Deutschfeindlich, which literally means German unfriendly. So these were people who had shown insufficient friendliness towards the Third Reich, uh, in this case, usually by dint of escaping. These were officers who had attempted to escape from other camps. I mean, the vast majority were hardened cases who simply wouldn't submit to German discipline. And the German idea was that um, if, you, if you could lock them all up in one place, uh, you know, you could keep them more secure. The problem with this idea was that it was completely wrong. Um, because, of course, if you lock up all the most difficult people in one place, <laughs> what yeah. they do is they encourage each other um, so, so, so Colditz became a kind of university for escapers, really. It's like a challenge, isn't it? Put you all together and see what you can do. Exactly. I mean, bear in mind that quite a lot of the German jailers were actually school teachers, believe it or not. I mean, the, these were people who kind of retired from the army and brought back in as, as prison warders. And they had a kind of schoolmasterly attitude towards all of this, which was that if you lock up the bad boys all together, then we can keep an eye on them. But of course, as we all know, if you lock up all the bad boys in the school in one classroom, they set fire to the classroom. Yeah. <laughs> so, so that's pretty much what happened in Colditz. And the other point is, I think they, they believe that somehow because this castle looked so terrifying, 
it would therefore be a very good place to lock people up. Actually, a medieval castle is a very bad place to lock people up because it's full of holes. And the castle was so old and so riddled with added additions and extra tunnels and ancient, um, you know, drainage systems and so on, that actually it was a kind of, it was it was really one of the worst places you could ever have chosen to try and lock people up. If you're trying to set up a prisoner of war camp, the Germans swiftly discovered the best place to do it is in a wide open field with a lot of barbed wire around it. It's not an 11th century Gothic castle. This is brilliant. <laughs> so not only have we got a leaky, uh, very old and not very secure location, we've also got all, as you say, the naughty boys locked up in one place. So who are the first prisoners that end up at Colditz? How do they get there? And what is life like for them? Well, the first prisoners uh, came from a camp called Laufen Camp, and they had tried to escape from there. So they were, they were the, the first half dozen or dozen or so Brits that arrived were Brits who, with a proven record of escaping. Um, they'd actually got very nearly got away from Laufen Camp. And so they were banged up in there. But when they arrived, they discovered that actually the place was already occupied by a lot of Polish officers who'd also tried to escape from elsewhere. And it's one of the aspects of Colditz that I found most interesting, really, is that certainly for the first half of its life as a prison camp, it was kind of a cosmopolitan place. There were, there were Brits, plenty, but there were also lots of um, Commonwealth soldiers from South Africa, uh, from Australia, from New Zealand. And then there were Poles, there were French, there were Belgian, there were Dutch. And it was a sort of babble of different nationalities and, and who were both, in honesty, they were both uh, colluding with each other to get out of this castle. But they were also competing wildly to get out and they were almost literally undermining each other. Because one would dig a tunnel without telling the others. And so the Polish tunnel would undermine the French tunnel, would undermine the British tunnel. So they worked out that they'd have to kind of work together. But a bit like the EU, really. I mean, they got on well until the point when they didn't get on well, at which point they got on incredibly badly. So so you had this sort of funny moment of some funny kind of atmosphere in Colditz where there was both great competition and great um, sort of collusion, if you like. They even had the Colditz Olympic Games, which they held after about a year in Colditz, where the different nationalities all competed against each other and immediately reverted to national stereotype. Um, you know, the, Pol- the Poles tried really hard. Uh, the French uh, pretended they weren't taking it seriously and the British just laughed at everybody. So um, so you had these, these kind of strange national stereotypes building up inside Colditz. How how would that affect like sort of daily daily life of the prisoners uh, with the with the different nationalities? Well, in, in terms of daily life, actually, for many of these many of these prisoners were young soldiers who who had been captured right at the beginning of the war, so they really had very little experience of other cultures. So for many of them, it was the first time they'd met foreign people at all, and so that was quite interesting actually. And and in lots of cases, they kind of paired up to take language lessons. Are they so, uh, are they allowed oh, to? Sorry, I was going to ask, are they allowed to just walk around the castle freely and mingle like that? Or is no, it? Okay. No, it's pretty closely controlled. It's best to imagine Colditz as two separate courtyards. So there's an inner courtyard, which was about the size of a tennis court with 90 foot high walls on each side. And then there was an exterior courtyard, which is where the German garrison was, was kept. And of course, bear in mind that for large periods of Colditz's existence, there were more guards than there were prisoners. I mean, the guards outnumbered the prisoners. So you've got these two separate worlds, if you like, sort of adjoining each other. And there were, there were three, initially three roll calls a day, eventually five roll calls a day, when all the prisoners had to assemble in the inner courtyard. They were locked into their different quarters um, at between nine and ten at night. But during the day, yes, in this inner courtyard, which was pretty tiny, actually, a cobbled thing, they were allowed to kind of move around fairly freely, that said, they were under constant surveillance. I mean, there were guards all over the place. And indeed, there were towards the end, there were machine gun emplacements above them. So it wasn't like they were completely free. But you got had an odd situation where the Germans were very closely watching the prisoners. But the prisoners were also very closely watching the Germans because they were also at this point planning many multiple escapes. So every time a German guard turned up, there was a signal system, which meant that they could alert others that they were on their way. So you had a sort of strange atmosphere. But so they were pretty much free during the day, but very much not free at night. They were locked up. Can I just chuck another question in before that's not on the list? Because I mm. don't think we're going to cover it. Who do the who did the Nazis put in charge 
Well, this is a very important point, Alex, because what we often forget about Collins is it, it wasn't a concentration camp. Yeah. It wasn't a death camp. It was a prison camp. And as such, it was run by German soldiers. This was run by the army, which meant that it operated under the Geneva Convention. Okay. And while the sort of myth of Colditz paints the jailers as sort of brutal Nazis who were, who were you know, bearing down on the... That wasn't quite true, in fact. The, the, you know, the Germans did their best to stick by the rules. That they, they tried, they didn't really mistreat the soldiers. Yes, if you were caught trying to escape and you wouldn't stop, they would shoot you. Because there's all sorts of like things in place, isn't there? So I know in the First World War, before America come in, the Americans can go, hey, Germany, that camp, we want to come and have a look around, please, and check that you're adhering to the Geneva Convention and stuff. So it's not a case of just uh, what they don't know doesn't (laughs) go at. There are sort of tried and tested international methods to try and maintain a a level of treatment and also as well one I I saw a big thing in World War One about submariners where Mm. Churchill threw them all in Dartmouth and was horrible to them and it Mm. caused uproar because it's like if you do that what do they do to our guys absolutely absolutely Alex they they were very alive the authorities to the idea that there had to be a reciprocal arrangement here that it was understood that there was a a level of treatment and indeed there were there was very controversial on both sides when there were perceptions of mistreatment so absolutely and as in the first world war there were neutral powers who were going in to inspect these prison camps to make sure that they were being run according to the rules now initially in the second world war before America joined the conflict. There were American inspectors who were going in after Pearl Harbor, of course, it was the Swiss who really took over. And the Swiss were very, as you would imagine, the Swiss were extremely punctilious about making sure that particularly Colditz, because of course it was already famous within the prison system, that particularly at Colditz, the rules were being observed. And by and large, by and large, they did. There were some there were some there were some horrible people among the guard contingent. But on the whole, the, the prisoners were quite well treated and quite well fed. Because of course they were officers. That's what we often forget. These, these were people who, under the Geneva Convention, not only had the right to Red Cross parcels and letters from home and contact with their families and friends, they had the right to servants. Now, this is something that I didn't know before I was studying this, but there's a massive social class cleavage that runs right through the centre of Colditz, which is that the officers had ordinary prisoners, ordinary soldiers, privates from the British Army, to serve them, to cook their food, to polish their boots, to, to get their bedrooms tidied up. And those servants, those orderlies, were not allowed to escape. So you've got this extraordinary division right running through the middle of college, which seems to us absolutely incomprehensible, but it was true. What's so interesting about the division between the officers and the orderlies was that, in fact, at one point, quite early on in the war, the orderlies went on strike. They said... <laughs> they said well, these French orderlies, doing... by any yeah, yeah, they just... Well, it was actually led by an Irishman, didn't okay. um, <laughs> And they said, look, we're not going to do this anymore. We don't see why we should be serving these officers since we're all in the same boat. And it's quite interestingly, because although Colditz was a kind of weird artificial microcosm of a sort of broader society, you had quite a lot of the sort of tensions that were beginning to erupt in modern society, including, including in this case, what was effectively an industrial dispute in the middle of Colditz Castle. Interesting, just a brief side note. My granddad was assigned to be a Batman in 1940 to an officer in the engineers. And after about a, a week, he, he went to his senior officer and said, I'm not doing this. I signed up to be a soldier, not a servant. And they signed it. <laughs> well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because initially the, the orderlies in college were quite pleased to be there. I mean, it was more comfortable than working in a copper mine or, you know, having to dig potatoes in Silesia. So originally some of them were quite pleased to be there. And it's, it's an interesting question about what, you know, they weren't officially banned from escaping, but they were told that if they did try to escape and the Germans caught them, there was a very good chance they'd just be shot. Whereas that wasn't true of officers. If officers were captured, really, on the whole, the worst that would happen to them was they'd be sent back to Colditz. You couldn't go around shooting officers. You know, there is this extraordinary kind of hierarchy of treatment in the Second World War that we tend to forget. So we're talking, starting to talk about escaping. So shall we... What kind of issues would the escapees possibly come into with, the, with, with trying to escape from the castle? 
Well, it became pretty clear that, that, that you needed equipment because getting out of cold yeah. was all very well uh, and, and very difficult to do. But it was even harder to get out of Germany because Kolditz is in the far east of Germany. Now, in order to get to a neutral border, the nearest one is 700 miles away. So you would need maps, you would need money, you would need equipment, you would need disguises, you would need fake uniforms. There were whole sets of stuff that they basically had to make in order to get out. Now, if you wanted to tunnel out, that was all very well as an idea, but you, you then needed equipment to do so. Um, and astonishingly, they managed to smuggle in a huge amount of escape equipment through the auspices of a brilliant, uh, also unheralded figure called Clutty, uh, Christopher Clayton Hutton, who was the inventor for MI9, which was the branch of British intelligence that dealt with escaping. And he was responsible for smuggling escape equipment into Colditz and other prisoner of war camps. And he did it on an industrial scale. So they were smuggling in money hidden inside chess sets, um, Benzedrine tablets inside draft pieces, badminton rackets with drills inside them. I mean, it was astonishing. And, and the, the Brits had worked out a way of writing coded letters back to MI9 using a special code in letters home. So it meant they could order things. So they could say, what we need is these kind of wiring for the generators, this sort of stuff we need, we, you know, we need. And one way they actually managed to smuggle in an entire generator um, so that they could continue drilling underground. So the ingenuity that went into it was absolutely astonishing. But as I say, getting out of Colditz was, was tough. Um, getting out of Germany was extremely difficult. I mean, that was really even tougher, really. But they, again, they worked together with each other to work out various routes. And it was extraordinary. I mean, obviously, for obvious reasons, there were more attempted escapes from Colditz than any other prison camp, which is hardly surprising, given that, that it was full of people who wanted to escape. But but actually, how, the number of them that worked is actually quite small. I mean, while I said at the beginning, half-jokingly, it was, it was not a great place to have a prison camp. As life went on, as more and more escapes happened, the Germans just shut down every avenue of escape. As soon as they uncovered one escape, they would seal off that escape route. So it became harder and harder and harder. I think... I. I love the level of ingenuity that comes into play because, again, like my, my frame of reference is always World War One, and at Holzminden, they were literally ordering equipment for escapes from the Army and Navy catalogue and having <laughs> prisoner of war camp, which I think you probably weren't getting away with by World War Two. Absolutely, um, well, no, they were ordering very specific items that they needed. I mean, it is part of the great Colditz sort of law legend, really, was the building of the great glider, the building of an entire glider in one of the attics. Uh, it was never flown, but it probably would have flown. And that was built out of out of hundreds of different pieces of tooled wood and, you know, uh, bedding and, and porridge and all sorts. Of, but it was, but a lot of the equipment for building that glider was ordered from Britain. So we're talking about we've looked at some time consuming concepts like the glider. That's going to take time. You mentioned the tunnel. So spring of 1941, we've got British, French and Poles because uh, you can't see this. Uh, but Alina is lurking, just fangirling and listening to this interview. Uh, so we have to mention the Poles, otherwise she gets mad. Uh, so they're all digging tunnels and these are like long term things, but they're not all like that, are they? So we've got some escapes. Um, let's talk about Alain Leray. It's not. Yes. So talk us through him and why was it successful? Well, he was the first escaper, Alain Luray. He was, he was an extraordinary sort of mountaineer, part of the Chasseur Alpin, a uh, sort of mountaineering regiment of the French. And he was one of the ones who operated solo. I mean, you, in a way, this is a bit schematic, but, that, you know, there were those who were prepared to work with other people to escape. There were those who decided to do escape runs on their own. And there were quite a lot of soldiers who just didn't want to escape at all. I mean, again, the myth we have handed down was that you know, everybody was trying to escape all the time. That's simply not accurate. Quite a lot of people thought, actually, it's not worth the danger. I'm just not going to try. Everyone helped. But, but so, yeah, I mean, Alain Ray was the first solo escaper, and he, he really did it with one other accomplice. Um, one of the things they did in Colditz was that, again, as part of the Geneva Convention, the soldiers had to be allowed to exercise. And so there was an exercise yard surrounded by, by wire built... Um, just outside the castle in the sort of in the hunting grounds there. And every day the soldiers would be marched down there uh, for exercise. What Alan Luray did was to hide in a sort of pile of rubble, a pile of, sort of wooden rubble on the way back, wait until nightfall, then literally just climb over the wall and walk to Switzerland. I mean, he took, he took a train and then another train. He ended up in Nuremberg where he mugged 
uh, a German civilian for his coat and money. And then he made his way to the Swiss border and simply crossed it by climbing onto the buffer of a moving um, locomotive that was just moving out of the station on the German on the German side and crossed over to Switzerland between the headlights of a train uh, and then got off at the other end. I mean, it was an incredibly lucky escape. It shouldn't really have worked. Uh, and, and the French contingent was absolutely delighted in Colditz. And the British contingent was really quite cross um, because the rivalry had already begun by that point. So you had this kind of strange point scoring system where nations were all trying to catch up with each other. And the French, certainly for the first year of Colditz, were way ahead. Then came the Brits and then the Poles, I'm sorry to say. The Poles caught up massively later on. <laughs> She's got her thumb up. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so how successful were the tunnels overall um, in getting people out? In truth, pretty unsuccessful. It's very hard to build a tunnel in a, in a castle that is packed with people, um, partly because of the noise. I mean, it's, you can't dig a tunnel silently. Um, the most successful was the French one called Le Metro, which ended up being 140 metres long. It was an astonishing feat of engineering, which started in the clock tower, then went down the, one of the sleeves that used to carry the weights to, to operate the, the clock mechanism. Then down through the, through, the, through the sort of roof of the cellars, down in the basement, under the floor of the chapel. They cut out the, the, the supporting beams of the chapel. Uh, to, uh, they got within about five metres of the edge of the precipice that's on the edge of Colditz. Um, and it, you know, had it not been betrayed that tunnel, undoubtedly they were going to do a mass escape. Every single French officer inside, and there were about 120 of them, were all going to get out. And it was an amazing feat of engineering. I think they used something like 600 bedboards to build the actual tunnel itself. They had a ventilation system made out of disused tin uh, with a bellows that worked. They even had a sort of telephone system rigged up inside it, so that um, underneath the sacristy of the chapel, so that they could alert. Uh, people at the top, if the soldier at the bottom, if there were if there were guards coming, I mean, it really was an amazing thing. It was so successful. They removed, I think, it was something like eight tons of spoil, you know, rocks, earth, bits of wood, which they hid in the attics. Um, and it was a close run thing whether the floor of the chapel or the roof of the attic was going to collapse first um, before they got out through it. But it was it was betrayed. They were they, the French were pretty sure that somebody tipped off. Eggers, I mean, Reinhold Eggers was the great German security officer. I say great. I mean, he was rather a remarkable man. I mean, he was a really, he was a, he was a sort of very punctilious German schoolmaster who regarded the whole thing as a sort of branch of Hegelian logic, really, that, you know, for every escape, there had to be a counter escape. And he treated the whole thing sort of semi-mathematically. And he had worked out that there was a ton of spoil in the attic because the roofs were literally bulging with this stuff, but he couldn't work out where it had come from. And he was the one... Who, who uncovered the tunnel. He always maintained that he'd done it out of his own brilliant ingenuity. In fact, it's pretty clear he was tipped off by one of the Frenchmen. Okay, go on. Uh, do you know what? Like, Elena speak. Do the next question because she's so excited. I don't know why. She wants Chris to have his moment in the sun, but she's so excited. She's binge-read this book over the weekend. I did. I binge-read read your book. No, actually, I just want to add something to, mm. the, uh, to, to the tunnels. Because I just wanted to ask you, were there, I already know the answer, but I would like you to answer this. Were there any incidents that mess things up severely for other people? For example, what did the Poles do to the Brits? <laughs> well, it wasn't their fault. They weren't doing this intentionally, but the Brits had worked out a very elaborate tunnel system. They worked out that by dropping into the drain underneath the canteen, they could build a kind of horizontal tunnel that would pop up in a sort of stretch of lawn outside the canteen. And then they could, if they could put a false trapdoor with turf on the top, they could then pop out of that, climb over the parapet, skin down it, and then get away, which was fine, except they got halfway through building the tunnel when they didn't realise it, but the poles had also worked out that the canteen was a kind of dodgy spot. And two Polish officers were caught trying to climb out of the window of the canteen, which meant 
the window that led onto this little patch of lawn, which meant that the Germans then immediately put a massive searchlight outside the canteen and the guard, which meant that the whole plan for the Brits went up in smoke. And it wasn't the Poles' fault. They didn't know that the Brits were digging underneath them. And the Brits didn't know that the Poles were themselves attempting an escape from the canteen. So that was really the birth of the moment when you had, and this, I just love this fact that, you know, whenever, you know, these people are gathered together, they create a committee. So, you know, the bureaucracy was, they then had to create an international escape committee, which in theory meant that the chief escape officer of each nation would be privy to all the other escape attempts by the other nations, which worked okay so long as the other escapers actually told them, told them, told their officers what they were doing, but they didn't always. And so you had, like all bureaucracies, you had a very elaborate system uh, that frequently didn't work at all. Amazing. Should we talk just, about, uh, despite Poland's best efforts, Brit, uh, let's talk about the first Brit to get out beyond the castle walls. Let's talk about Peter Allen, because this is an odd escape, isn't it? So tell us what happened and was he well, successful? Yeah, this was the first impromptu escape, really, and it was completely ad hoc. It hadn't been planned at all. What was happening was um, the Germans were replacing some old mattresses in the top of the castle, and they had a group of workers, French uh, captured um, orderlies, who, who were sort of hauling these mattresses down. And Peter Allen was a very small Scotsman. Uh, he, was, he was chosen for this on the grounds not of his ingenuity or brilliance or anything else, but just because he was rather tiny. Um, and as they were carrying down these mattresses, they realised that there was room, just room to stuff poor old Peter Allen into one of them. So they, you know, they persuaded the French orderlies to let them do it. While the German guards were, were turned around, they stuffed Peter Allen into one of these mattresses and hauled him onto the back of a truck. And he was simply driven out of the front gate of Colditz. He got down to the, he was, you know, at the other end, he was rather uncomfortably thrown into a kind of, um, into a sort of warehouse. He broke out of that and set off wearing, wearing a pair of gym shoes and a T-shirt, hoping to look a little like a member of the Nazi youth as he, as he headed off into the, into the countryside. All he had was a little bit of money, no papers. But amazingly, it took him a long time. He managed to get as far as Vienna. Uh, and in Vienna, he, he, was, he, was, he was really incredibly hungry. He had no money. And he, he thought, well, look, I'll, I'll throw myself on the mercy of the Americans. The Americans were not in the war by this point. Um, but he thought, look, I'll go to the American consulate and they will help me. So he presented himself um, to an official at the American consulate. And some Americans were extremely sympathetic to the Allied cause, as we all know at this point, but some were not. And this one said, you haven't got a hope. There's no way the Germans are going to get you. Give yourself up. And so poor old Peter Allen did exactly that. He, he, he lay for a couple of hours on a park bench and then realised he just couldn't go on and gave himself up. But it was a valiant attempt. It was an extraordinary. And he got a very long way. And I think that encouraged the others to think that actually it wasn't as hard as it looked, that there was a way to do this. And if you planned it properly, if, it, you know, if Peter Allen could get all that way really without any planning and with very little equipment, I think the others worked out, well, what can we do with lots of planning and lots of equipment? When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Just, just curious, what did the Germans make of all the escape attempts, like the ingenuity of digging all the tunnels? Were they secretly impressed that they, yeah. the, like the massive tunnel under the chapel that this had been going on? Yeah, they were incredibly impressed. I mean, you know, particularly this man, Reinhold Eggers, who's one of my favourite characters in the whole book, because he was a, he was a very civilised man, Eggers. He was, a, he was a schoolmaster. He was an Anglophile, actually. Spoke perfect English. He taught at school in, at a school in Cheltenham. 
Um, and he had a very high esteem for the British. In fact, he couldn't. He was always rather offended. He couldn't work out why the Brits inside Colditz were so rude to him when the people in Cheltenham had all been so polite and courteous and buying him drinks in the pubs and so on. So he was sort of very surprised by all that. But so he was he, he was fascinated. He he really became the kind of professor of escapology at Colditz. Then he set up what he called the Colditz Museum, which he stuffed with escape equipment, confiscated kit that he'd managed to get off. The, the, the different sort of failed escapes. He even managed to persuade uh, escapers to reenact their own failed escapes so that he could have them photographed by a photographer, Johann Langer. And he kept all these photographs. So he had a kind of incredible pictorial record of what had gone on in Colditz. And one of the incredible lucky breaks I had with writing this book was that I was given by the grandson of one of the former prisoners, I was given Eggers' own scrapbook. This was, I've got it here somewhere, I can show it to you. It's an extraordinary sort of leather-bound scrapbook, which contained all these photographs and, 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 and artefacts and so on, all annotated with Reinhold Eggs in, in English, with his English annotations on all of them. Um, and a lot of that stuff is other photographs that have appeared in the book. So, yeah, the Germans were fascinated by it. And, the, you know, just as the British, to some extent, regarded it as a sort of game, so the Germans did too. It was a sort of game of cat and mouse. And Eggers was frightfully proud when you know, he was invited to go around other prisoner of war camps in Germany and kind of lecture on just how brilliant he'd been at stopping everyone from escaping, which he was. I mean, he was very good at it. So in some ways, that kind of legend we have of a sort of, it was all a jolly jape. Um, it was partly true. I mean, it's not the whole story of Colin. I guess because, if you don't shoot the officers, then it is war without the consequences, isn't it? It is a game. Up until the point, Alex, when Hitler passed the commando order, which you all know about, which was which said that anyone caught behind the lines from that moment on was liable to summary execution. And from that moment, what had been really in a way a kind of a sort of game, it was still dangerous. You could be shot while escaping, but you weren't going to be murdered, changed. Mm. And the actuarial calculation involved in being an escaper changed completely. And inevitably, there was a steep drop off in the number of attempted escapes because many prisoners thought, well, this is really just not worth it. You've already alluded to this, but let's go into it in a bit more detail. So prisoners getting their information from somewhere. So local maps, troop movements, even money. How do they do it? Well, this is, again, one of the bizarre discoveries of this story is that the Colditz prisoners had their own spy network operating inside Colditz town, believe it or not. They had people in the, in the village who were opposed to Hitler's regime, who were supplying them with really quite important local information about troop deployments and who the local Nazis were, particularly towards the end of the war, which was being sent back to Britain in coded letters. Now, in the, in the book, I call this sort of, sort of tongue-in-cheek, the dental connection, because it involved, believe it or not, two dentists, one of whom was a woman who was the assistant to the town dentist. Her name was Irma uh, Valnica. And she contrived, astonishingly, to have a love affair with one of the soldiers inside Colditz, a rather debonair and loose Czech flying officer called Checo Chalutka, who, who sort of, they fell in love on the train as Checo was being brought into Colditz in handcuffs. He caught Irma's eye and... They contrived to meet thereafter periodically by dint of Checo chipping his teeth with a rock every so often so that he would have to be taken down to the town dentist, whereupon he bribed the local dentist to allow him to have his, 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 his he and Irma to meet in the back room. Um, but at the same time, Irma was passing on very, very important information, which Checo was then ferrying back into Colditz. And then another dentist... Uh, by the name of Julius Green, who was a Jewish Glaswegian, uh, very good dentist, but also he was in charge of sending back coded messages. So from one dentist to another, this astonishing trove of material was going back to Britain. So, so they were actually getting very important information out. How many teeth did he have left by the end of it? Oddly enough, I, I, I haven't really done a dental test. The last Checo didn't survive long after the war. In fact, he turned out to be a total fraud. He turned out not to be an officer at all. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, no, he was complete. Uh, he, was, he was the one who was in charge of the black market inside Colditz. He was, a, he was sort of, 
he was Walker from Dad's Army, but Czech, if you know what I mean. He was forever trying to sell you an egg or a watch or whatever he's done. Exactly the one you would expect to have a bit on the side outside. Absolutely. He was a very likely lad. Very, very, very good fun, I think. But I think by the end, he had probably very few teeth. But I think he thought that was a price worth paying. The price we pay for love. Um, <laughs> who, were the, uh, who were the ghosts and what effect did they have on the escape attempts? One of the most important sort of elements of escaping from college was to try to conceal escapes that had happened and try and also try to suggest that escapes had happened when they hadn't, because that way you could buy time for people who'd escaped. So if you could convince the Germans that there were still people on roll call when they were actually out of the castle, they wouldn't raise the alarm. It gave absolutely vital extra hours for the escapers to get away. And conversely, if you could persuade uh, the Germans that somebody had escaped when they hadn't, uh, they would tick them off the list. They wouldn't therefore have to turn up at roll calls. And then they were at leisure, if you like, to escape within their own time. So confusing the roll call was absolutely essential. One way of doing it was, I mean, the, the Dutch brilliantly actually built two dummies that they would t- that they were called Max and Moritz, and they would take them on parade and sort of hold them up in, in sort of greatcoats between them as if there were extra people on parade to sort of buy time. But the ghosts were even more in- ingenious. These were people who were hidden inside the castle for very long periods and would then drop off the number roll completely, giving the escapers time, therefore, to manufacture escapes that wouldn't then be noticed because the ghosts could then re-emerge from hiding, fill in the numbers on roll call, and, and you would buy time. And the two of them, they, they were extraordinary, uh, called Harvey and Best, managed to hide in a hole under the tunnel for nearly half a year before they were finally found out. So they would spend the daytime in there. At night, they would come out. Um, and bear in mind that the Brits, well, actually, the French were brilliant at this, but the Brits had also managed to pick virtually every lock in Colditz. So they could get through the doors at night and with their system of stooges who were the early warning system they basically had the run of the castle at night so these ghosts could be brought out brought back to life as it were allowed to have a sort of kip and then they'd go back into their holes during the day so they wouldn't be spotted it was just a really ingenious way of bamboozling the number system inside colditz so Let's talk about the inhabitants in the sense of once the Allies landed in Normandy. Um, this is the last sensible question, and then I'm just handing over <laughs> to the fangirl questions at the end that she's put on the end because she just wants to know. Uh, so after they landed in Normandy, you get more and more POWs arriving in the camp, especially at the beginning of 1945. So how does this change the dynamic of Colditz? The first soldiers in Colditz were almost all professional soldiers captured um, before the retreat from Dunkirk. So they were the sort of left behinds, if you like. And they brought with them a very particular kind of mentality, which was that they'd sort of been denied the opportunity to fight. And so there was intense frustration. They felt they'd, many of them felt they'd let their countries down. They'd been promised that the war was going to be over very quickly, that it would be a war uh, of stasis, like the First World War. In fact, there they were locked up indefinitely without having done anything, you know, either a crime or, or in fact, taking part in the war. As the war went on and more commandos were captured, more shot down pilots and so on, the atmosphere changed a lot. And, and increasingly, these were people, many of whom felt they'd already played their part in the war. They, they had a different attitude towards it and they were, they were less keen on escaping. Of course, you then had the American contingent appearing towards the end of the war. These were, again, pilots and others who'd been shot down or spies who'd been captured in, inside German territory. And so you did, you did get a different constellation. Also, the other thing that changed radically in Colditz was that it became a, a British or rather an Anglo camp. Um, the, the French, the Poles, the Dutch, the Belgians were all moved out. Um, towards the end of the war. And the, so for the final year and a half of its existence, it was, it was a POW camp for British, Commonwealth and American soldiers. And that, that changed. It, it became much less of a cosmopolitan place. In fact, in some cases, it became much more clubby. You know, the, the sort of social divisions that persisted in, in, sort of in wartime Britain and persist today uh, came out in, 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 in real quantity there. I mean, it's one of the odd things about Colditz is that it was... It was quite a class-ridden place in lots of ways. I mean, not only did you have the orderlies who were the sort of working class and the upper class who were the Brits, there was actually, believe it or not, there was a Bullingdon club in Colditz, the famous <laughs> dining club from, from Oxford, that it had its own equivalent in Colditz. It was highly exclusive. You weren't allowed to belong to it unless you belonged to the original Bullingdon club. So these strange kind of social divisions that we Brits 
seem to love. You know, whenever three Brits are gathered together, two of them will form a club to exclude the third. Um, that, that also happened in, inside Colditz. I mean, it's a bizarre national obsession. I mean, the Etonians, for example, uh, would always hang out together and would only go to the loo at the same time, which I always thought was rather a bizarre way of carrying on public tradition. I can understand a 4th of June dinner, but yeah, that's a little bit... Mm. It's going a bit far, isn't it? You only go to the, only go to the laugh together, but there we are. Uh, we're just going to hand over to Alina now. Just just follow <laughs> Alina. Look at her face. She's so excited. <laughs> Okay, we've been been professional and uh, now we're going to go down to being a little bit unprofessional. But you have so many escapes in this book. You have to have a favourite, one that is inspiring, one that out of every talk you go to, you have to talk about this escape. Tell us which one it is and tell us a bit about it. Can I have two? I'll do the first one very quickly. The first one I just can't resist telling you, which was, which was a French cavalry officer who went by the unimprovable name of Jean-Marie Mérès Lebrun, who was an extraordinarily elegant figure. He was always beautifully turned out. Um, and, he's, and, and as I say, he was a sort of cavalry officer. And he contrived, very simple escape, really, um, with his wash bag and his shaving kit and a spare set of clothes in one hand, he simply ran up to the exercise yard fence and, with the aid of an accomplice, vaulted over the top of it as if he was a sort of thoroughbred taking, you know, the final fence of the Arc de Triomphe. Then he ran up a hill while being shot at by the Germans, climbed over a wall, ran for another 15 miles, stole a bicycle by dint of knocking out its owner with the bicycle pump, cycled the wrong way up the autobahn um, for about 150 miles to the Swiss border, whereupon he went wandering across the border, met a milkmaid and said, am I in France? He said, no, monsieur, you are in Switzerland. And that was that. But the best bit about this story, I think, is that he then wrote to the commandant of Colditz when he got back saying, "Uh, dear sir, could you possibly return my clothes? Because... um, I, I got a rather nice set of kit that I want back. And sure enough, the German commandant did it. He should go, I'm up. sorry, but the best ending for that, he has to impregnate the milkmaid. Because other than that, it is not, the most French thing I've ever heard in my life. He just not like, that we yes, know of. And off he goes. It's entirely possible. I wouldn't be one bit surprised. Um, so, he, then he, so he gets his clothes back and head, heads back to France, which I completely love. But the, I mean, for sheer kind of dogged, ingenuity. I think Airy Neve, who will be known to some of your, your readers, who ended up as the MP for Abingdon and was then murdered, in fact. Um, he became a, a sort of senior advisor to Margaret Thatcher and was killed with a car bomb um, uh, in, in the grounds of, of, of Westminster. But he was extraordinary. He was a very young soldier and he was an obsessive and he was absolutely determined to get out. And his first attempt was a complete failure because he, he created his own uh, disguise, which was ludicrous. And he... he he painted it with scenery paint, completely the wrong colour. So he looked like a kind of fluorescent elf when they caught him um, <laughs> before he even got outside the castle walls. But the second one was extraordinary. He went through the floor of the theatre, climbed along a kind of witch's walk thing above the gateway, dressed in a perfect German officer's replica outfit and with the aid of a Dutch accomplice, strolled out of the front door and then, and then climbed on a train and then another train and then climbed into civilian clothes. And his description of his escape is just so nail-bitingly exciting because at every moment you think this cannot possibly work. And he does. They manage to get across the border into Switzerland, uh, whereupon they don't know if they're in Germany still. They still think they might be in Switzerland. And they see a man in an outfit who turns out to be a strolling Swiss guard. And the three of them, it's very moving, sort of embrace each other in the snow and perform this strange dance of liberation just beyond the German border when they get out. And it's actually incredibly moving. And and uh, Aaron Eve went on to work for MI9 for the escape committee back in London. So his story, in a way, comes full circle. I think one of my favourite escapes, well, unrealistic escapes, I can't remember the name of the guy that did it, but uh, he dressed up as a woman. Tried to yes. walk out the gate, dropped the watch, got caught yeah. by the German guard. This is the splendid Lieutenant Boulet, um, who, um, yeah, there is a photograph of him, which was in Eggers' collection, so I've reproduced it in the book, of him in full drag. And it's quite convincing, actually. So as the, as the, the sort of exercise party were coming up from the, from, the, from the exercise yard one day, this rather attractive middle-aged German woman sort of strolled past them in a hat and a sort of floral dress, 
Um, but she dropped her watch. And one of the British officers, in a rather sort of courteous gesture, picked it up and said, Fräulein, Fräulein, you, you've dropped your watch. She didn't turn around. She carried on. So so he, he and she was obviously going down the hill as they were all going up. So he ran to the German guard and said, this poor woman has dropped her watch. You must go back and return the watch to her. Um, and so the German guard duly returned the watch, took a double look at um, this German woman going down the hill, who he assumed was one of the laundry maids. I mean, there were women going in that. Took a double look and realised that she had a fair bit of stubble going on. Um, <laughs> and immediately stopped. It was a story that the Brits absolutely loved because they thought it reflected very well on their gallantry and general politeness. The French thought it was much, much less funny. <laughs> I've got to say, I am captivated. I think we could sit here and listen to you all day. But I know (laughs) Alex is going to tell me off if I ask any more questions. Oh, you're good. God, you can have five more minutes. Five more minutes. Oh, okay. So with, okay, so that was probably my, I think, I think Chris has got one, haven't you? One of your craziest escapes. Yeah, was there was a, a, a German NCO who had a long sort of Prussian moustache. <laughs> uh, right. Gustav Rottenberger, he was called. Gustav Rottenberger. Yeah, this is yeah. a great This was a wonderful one. This was by the, the, the great escaper, Michael Sinclair, who they were who impersonated this kind of um they called him Franz Joseph because he had these long whiskers and, and so they built a sort of fake set of moustaches out of shaving brushes and an entire fake kit as a sort of German sergeant major and it came very very close to, to, to working this was going to be the mass British escape the idea was that um, he would impersonate Rottenberger and with two other assistants also dressed in full German uniform they would simply tell relieve the guard at one of the key gates and tell them that they were being relieved early send them away then whistle down the rest of the Brits who were going to come down in ropes from an upper building open the open the door and then they were all going to escape uh, it didn't work, alas, because of. Well, I'm not going to give it away for your readers. I wanted to read the book, but it's. But there, it was. A, it was one of those classics that, while they had thought about the detail brilliantly, right down to his moustache, they made one absolutely classic error. But there's one. There's one. There's one escape that I, I guess I should have probably mentioned earlier, which, which to me was an absolute revelation, and perhaps not for the reasons that you'd expect. There was one non-white soldier in the British contingent, and he was an Indian doctor called Birendranath Mazumdar. And his story has never been told before, because when he arrived in Kolditz, uh, Mazumdar suffered the most appalling racism, really. But it wasn't from the Germans, it was from his fellow Brits. I mean, this, is, this should be, you know, this is a story that's never been told. He was told he wasn't allowed to escape because he was the wrong colour. He was told that, you know, if you, if you leave this prison, they're all going to pick you up. Now... Maybe that was true. In fact, it turned out not to be true because in the end, Mazumdar was so upset by the way he was treating Collins, he went on hunger strike and said, you have to move me to an all-Indian prison, which the commandant finally agreed to do. And Mazumdar escaped from that prison with another Indian, walked 700 miles across occupied France, across the Jura Mounted Range into Switzerland, whereupon he was immediately arrested by the Brits as a suspected spy and held under house arrest. So it's it's an extraordinary story that's never been told, really because he was the wrong colour. I mean, that sounds like a terrible thing to say, but, but I think there is an element of that. He didn't really fit into the myth. And his, his widow is still... He became a GP in Devon, believe it or not, and spent the rest of his life in Britain. And his widow, lovely Joan Mazumdar, is, is still alive, uh, aged 96. And she told me this story, and, and we listened to his... He made these tape recordings of what had happened to him. And I think for her and for him, being able to tell this story at last is a real vindication. And a sign, perhaps, that our world has sort of moved on from where we were in 1945. One, one more before we finish, because mm. I just want to continue on from this. There are quite a few stories that have never been told. And you do talk a lot about, for example, racism and things that we talk about today. So anti-Semitism mm. makes an appearance in the mm. book where you talk about how the French and it was the French who ostracised their fellow French Jews. That's right. Isn't that a shocking thing? I mean, I was stunned by this. I didn't know it before. But quite soon in the, in the history of Colditz, the, the, as it were, the Aryan French officers said, we do not want to be billeted with the Jews. You have to put them somewhere separately. And bear in mind that quite a lot of the captured French were Vichyites. They were people who were supportive of the Pétain regime, the collaboration Pétain regime back in France. And sure enough, the Germans, sensing a propaganda opportunity, 
did indeed remove the French Jews and put them in an attic, which, of course, immediately became known as the ghetto. And, and it was an appalling act, really, and, and it outraged and it, uh, people. One of the Brits on the British side just couldn't believe it. And it led to great tension between the French and British contingents for quite a long period. Airy Nee, for example, was one of those who just said it was absolutely unacceptable behaviour. But, you know, in a way that reflects, again, the way that Colditz was a kind of microcosm of a wider society, if you like. I mean, they were, you know, they did reflect the prejudices and the biases and so on of what was happening on the outside. Now, I would emphasise, this isn't a woke version of Colditz. This isn't, I'm not, you know, I didn't go into this trying to find the elements that would sort of, point up our own interests today. But I do think it's one of the things one can do with wartime history. And it's a slight riposte to people who say, oh, no, we've learned everything we ever need to know about the Second World War. Well, have we? I think there's a way of looking at the Second World War through the prism of our own lives and our own concerns and the way we live today. That is very relevant to the past. It doesn't mean reinterpreting. It doesn't necessarily mean passing moral judgment on the past. But I think it is, it is what history is for, really, and it's why history never ends, is that we can take the present and use it as our way of looking at the past, not necessarily with moral judgment, sometimes with moral judgment, but at least with a slightly clearer eye and to try to find these stories that have hitherto been obscured, either intentionally or more often unintentionally. These stories simply slip out of our memories because they're not told at the time. Ben, thank you so much for joining us. You have made my week. I have been dying to get you on our podcast. I'm so happy you've been able to come on board to talk to us. And Alex is laughing at my fangirliness. You can hear it in my voice because of how excited I am. I have been sitting on every single word you've been saying. I wish wish we could talk for another hour. She's literally just arrived in Oxford to give a talk. And she's not even like <laughs> unpacked her bag. She's thrown herself at the internet connection to get on to listen to this. So, yeah. Well, I'm very, I'm very touched. You're very kind. And I've thoroughly enjoyed this. This has been great fun. Thank you. Uh, Excellent. So just tell everybody because we will put it available in our bookshop. Do go and buy it on there because then not only does Ben get his cut, uh, but local bookshops get a cut, independent bookshops, and so do History Hack. So it works for everybody. Uh, ben, what is the book called? It's called Colditz, Prisoners of the Castle. Excellent. Do go and get your copy and thank you very much. A pleasure. Thank you. Our incredible guests give us 45 minutes of their time to join us and talk about their work or their new book. This is just a small taster. As a result, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest books, you can support them, and you can support us on History Hack. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep going and bring you more top-of-the-line guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack, or search for us in the shop section. Thank you so much for your continued support. We really appreciate our listeners and supporters. So make sure you get down to the bookshop and grab yourselves a new book. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. <laughs> 